0: and welcome to the weekend women. I'm Jill Filipovic. This is our inaugural show, so thank you for tuning in. The Weekend Women will be a weekly show that runs down the headlines in gender and women's rights and then does a deeper dive into one single important story. Some weeks we'll have guests and experts on, other weeks like this one, it's just going to be me. I'm hoping to give this show room to shift and evolve as needed, so if there's something you want to hear or you have a suggestion, feel free to let me know. Just don't email me complaining about my vocal fry. There's nothing I can do about it. So let's get started. This week, the big story, obviously, is the Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade, and we're going to do a deep dive into that issue later on in the show. But first, I want to do a quick rundown of women's rights news. One big piece of news this week is that R. Kelly was sentenced to 30 years in prison for sex trafficking, among other charges. R. Kelly has been this known child predator for decades. The initial reporting on lawsuits against R. Kelly, many of them from or premise on abuse of underage girls. That story was broken in the year 2000 by the reporter Jim DeRogatis in the Chicago Sun Times. This was on record that R. Kelly was sexually abusing and then let's use the right words. R. Kelly was raping children. He was also abusing, torturing, controlling, grooming adult women. And it really wasn't until 2017, when two women started the social media campaign, hashtag mute R. Kelly, that this case, these many cases started getting much more attention. That led into a documentary called Surviving R. Kelly, in which a series of survivors of R. Kelly's abuse went on the record and talked about what the singer had done to them. Much of that wound up being the basis for this legal case, R. Kelly was charged in 2019, the same year that Surviving R. Kelly and Jim Derogatis' book both came out detailing R. Kelly's long, long history of abuse. One thing that Surviving R. Kelly points out and that Jim Derogatis' book also gets into is that there was a whole system behind him enabling these abuses. And so while the outcome today, R. Kelly finally being sentenced, is justice for the man himself. And I hope for the many brave survivors who spoke out at his trial. Um, it doesn't quite hold to account all of the other folks who enabled him, who gave him a pass, who made him very, very wealthy while he was abusing women and girls. And I want to read a statement from a woman who was a witness at R Kelly's trial. She was identified as Jane Doe too. And she said in her victim impact statement, it's been 23 years since we knew each other and you victimized a lot of girls since then. She added, now it's your turn to have your freedom taken from you. Also in the news this week is WNBA star, Brittany Griner who is still being held in Russia on trumped up drug charges. The charges against Griner stem from something, I mean, so absurd that in Britney Griner's luggage, they found some vape cartridges that had trace amounts of hashish oil. And for this, Griner now faces 10 years in a Russian penal colony. What's clear is that the Russian government, with its incredibly brutal and unpopular war in Ukraine, is trying to use Griner as a pawn in its battles with the United States. And Griner's agent said as much, she wrote in an email to the New York Times, Brittany has been classified as wrongfully detained since April 29th, which means that the U.S. government has determined she is being used as a political pawn, and as a result is engaging in negotiations for her release, regardless of the legal process. As such, our expectation, Brittany's family included, remains that president Biden get a deal done and bring her home. And finally in Ukraine, women and children who have been raped by Russian soldiers are demanding justice. And some of them are starting to get it, even if it's just a sliver of what they deserve. On Thursday, according to reporting by the New York times in Kyiv, the first trial for rape as a war crime commenced. And it's being held against a soldier, a 32 year old named Mikhail Romanov. He's being tried in absentia. And he's accused of entering a home, raping a woman in front of her child, and then killing her husband. There have been more than a thousand reports of these kinds of war crimes, atrocities, carried out by Russian soldiers against civilians in Ukraine. According to one Ukrainian human rights office, they received more than 1500 calls in a period of just a few weeks detailing sexual violence, detailing other atrocities. According to this same piece, uh, the oldest victim of rape in Ukraine was an 82 year old woman and the youngest was a nine month old baby. The Russian government, insists that its soldiers do not commit war crimes. And I want to read a line from Valerie Hopkins's piece. She writes, the challenges of prosecuting the assaults are daunting. Evidence is limited and the victims are traumatized and sometimes reluctant to testify about their assault. If they even report it at all, the accused soldiers have mostly disappeared. And here in the U.S., you probably all know by now that our Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade last week. Roe was decided in 1973. It legalized abortion nationwide. And this is the first time really in my, in, certainly in my lifetime and probably, probably longer, probably in my mother's lifetime, that the Supreme Court has stripped away such a fundamental civil right And there's been a lot of good commentary and writing on this case about how it makes women less than full citizens of the United States, how it creates special obligations on pregnant people that don't apply to anyone else dead or alive. But I want to emphasize a few things. And and the first is the chaos. One argument that conservative legal scholars and conservatives generally made against Roe and in favor of the Supreme Court overturning it was that Roe was divisive, that abortion is a divisive social issue, and that having this kind of court issue a ruling from on high only stoked the flames of conflict and made the issue much more chaotic than it had to have been. That's objectively pretty untrue when you look at polling. Roe was very popular even a lot of Republicans, even a lot of folks that self identify as pro-life tell pollsters that they believe that the Supreme court should uphold Roe versus Wade, but Supreme court didn't do that. And now we're in a situation where it's not just that where a woman lives determines what kind of reproductive health care she can access. It's what day of the week it is. It's what hour of the day it is. Right now at the state level, in states that ban abortion at various stages and for various reasons, there's total legal chaos. Pro-choice groups are suing. States are defending their laws. State legislatures are scrambling to pass new and more restrictive laws. Some laws have been put into place and then have been stayed by the courts, which means that clinics have closed and then reopened and may have to close again. And the outcome of this is that it's very, very difficult for your average citizen to know not just what kind of healthcare she has access to today, but will she be able to go in for her appointment next week? What kind of healthcare access is she going to have tomorrow? It's a wildly expensive set of legal battles, and it's basically turned into a total massive shit show. In Louisiana, a judge just said that the state cannot implement their very restrictive abortion law holding essentially that it's too constitutionally vague. So that's going to continue to be battled out. A similar thing just happened in Texas, where Texas has now reverted to its already highly restrictive six-week abortion ban. And we're seeing similar legal battles in Florida, in Kentucky, in Arizona, in Ohio. And we're going to keep seeing this going forward, these kind of pitched fights The Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health, which is the case that overturned Roe, didn't offer much in the way of clarity. All it's really offered is a vastly uneven United States of healthcare options. At the same time, 80 elected prosecutors have signed a statement, laudably, saying that they're not going to enforce laws that criminalize abortion. They wrote in their statement, criminalizing and prosecuting individuals who seek or provide abortion care makes a mockery of justice. Prosecutors should not be part of that, but conservative prosecutors have vowed to press forward to allow, for example, conservative prosecutors in rural areas to bring criminal charges against urban residents. If prosecutors in big cities won't do it again, total chaos. The Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe also thrusts us in to a new kind of battle on two fronts, information and free speech. There's a great piece in the New York Times this week by the truly excellent tech reporter, Kashmir Hill, where she talks to lawyers, as well as digital security experts about how a person's digital footprint might be used against them in court in states where abortion is criminalized. She speaks to a woman named Cynthia Conti Cook, who's a civil rights lawyer and a technology fellow at the Ford Foundation. And Conti Cook tells Hill that a digital footprint that could be used against you in court could be anything from a text message to your sister saying, fuck, I'm pregnant, or a search for abortion options. If a woman winds up having a miscarriage, It could be that anyone who is affiliated with her, who's suspected of aiding and abetting her abortion could face criminal charges and she could face charges herself, despite the fact that the anti-abortion right is currently saying that women will go to jail for this. The reality is women in the U.S. have already been charged for having miscarriages and stillbirths and women in the U.S. have already seen things like their search histories and text histories used against them in court. And it gets scarier than that. Very mundane apps. For example, your weather app may track where you are. When you open up your phone and you're looking at local weather, it's because your phone is tracking your location, right? Prosecutors can potentially use that location data to track whether a person traveled out of state to have an abortion, whether someone had traveled elsewhere to aid and abet a woman having an abortion. These Apps pose real risks. And I think there are real questions of whether telecommunications companies are going to comply with subpoenas to provide that information and whether prosecutors are simply going to seize women's phones and laptops, or people's phones and laptops, and potentially use your tech trail against you. And then finally, there's the question of free speech. This is an important one because, really, no matter how you feel about abortion as an issue, no matter how you feel about the legality of abortion rights, moves to restrict speech around abortion should frighten and appall you. The National Right to Life Committee just released model legislation, and I'm going to link it in the show notes, and I hope you go read it, because I know reading through legislation doesn't sound super entertaining, and this is certainly not entertaining, but it is really, really horrifying, and I don't think you can quite get the whole gist of it unless you look at it yourself. It criminalizes quote-unquote aiding and abetting abortion, And it puts under that umbrella sharing any information about how to get an abortion. It puts under that umbrella being an abortion doula, which is somebody who just holds a woman's hand while she's ending a pregnancy. That would be a felony offense under this model legislation, a newsletter like the one that I write a podcast like this one, that may tell you that you can get abortion pills online, And if you get them from a reputable source, for example, from aidaccess.org or from Plan C pills, that those websites will send you safe medication that can end a pregnancy. And the fact that I just said that on a podcast under this model legislation could throw me in jail. Again, no matter how you feel about abortion rights, that kind of restriction of free speech should really, really give you pause. Beyond that, restricting this kind of speech doesn't mean that women won't have access to information about how to get an abortion. It just means they're going to have access to bad information that's going to make abortion less safe. We are not in the same place that we were pre row In many ways, the post row era is going to be a safer era for women than the pre row era. That universe of back alley abortions and coat hangers it's not to say that that's not going to impact any woman, but it is to say that we now have cheap, overwhelmingly safe and highly effective methods of self-managing abortion. And it's it's Misoprostol and Mifepristone. Those medications are sold as ultra medications. They are highly affordable. And right now in the US, they're relatively easy to get. The problem is when you block any information about the efficacy and the safety of those medications. And certainly when you block information about how to get those medications, the result isn't that women simply won't have abortions. The result is that women who are seeking information on how to self-induce will be left with very little information on how to do so safely and will take matters into their own hands, often in pretty old school ways that we know have very dangerous outcomes. And this is also where we see the impact of big and largely unaccountable tech companies. You have this national right to life model legislation that's trying to criminalize even telling a woman about misoprostol, even putting up a billboard in the state of Texas saying you can get a safe legal abortion in New York. Even having a website that simply gives information, doesn't sell pills, just tells women here's how to use them or here's what the medication is called. Doing any of that can send you to jail. So that's problem one. But problem two is this question of how are Google, Facebook, social media companies, other big tech companies going to react to this new, very balkanized criminal landscape in the U.S.? Will it be the case that if you search for self-managed abortion or abortion pills or self-induced abortion or how to induce a miscarriage in the state of Texas, Will you get the same Google results as you would if you made that search in New York City? I think it's an open question. Will Facebook, Instagram, Twitter allow pro-choice organizations that give women accurate information about safe, if not totally legal abortion? Will those organizations, those social media platforms, allow these groups to continue their Facebook pages, to post on Twitter, to post on Instagram, to reach folks in the way that in the year 2022 is totally standard. This combination of hyper surveillance and the shutting down of information sharing really does pitch us into an incredibly scary future. We are in a whole new world and the anti-abortion right is further into your uterus, into your phone, into your laptop and into the most intimate aspects of your life than ever before. And that's it from me. This has been the week in women. I am your host, Jill Filipovich. Just as a reminder, paid subscribers to my newsletter, get this podcast before anyone else. You can become a paid subscriber by going to jill.substack.com and it will be released a few days later for everyone else on again, jill.substack.com or on Spotify, Apple podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Bye.